Welcome to Seeking Paradise, Reflections on Spirituality, Community and Justice. Our first reading is from Rebecca Parker. Our heritage rejects authoritarian religion and its negative view of human beings. Our forebears claimed a more positive view. They said we are born with capacities for good and evil and possess a whole array of gifts and abilities. Our powers can be used in the service of all sorts of values, but the choice is in our hands. Chief among the human gifts we celebrate is the capacity to think and to reason. Our affirmation of reason is part and parcel of our affirmation of the essential goodness and worthiness of human life. We replaced outside authorities with the inner authority of conscience and reason. And our second reading comes from the book of Genesis. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. So when I was a kid, um, I got into a dinosaur phase and uh, I never really got out of it. I kept in that dinosaur phase uh, for a very long time. I actually still have all my uh, dinosaur models that I ever uh, bought in my childhood. Um, all the rest of uh, any toys that I have, I no longer possess from my childhood, but I'm not thrown away anything uh dinosaur related i've still got them many of them in boxes and running them round about i've got one here this is my um uh life-size uh kind of raptor uh hatching out of an egg which is one of the kind of classier nicer ones of my uh, dinosaur tools but i've got <laughs> i've got literally hundreds <laughs> hundreds of them um i was going to be a paleontologist that was my my life plan from the age of five to the age of 18 really i was into dinosaurs i wanted to be a paleontologist uh, i studied uh, science a levels and then went to university to study uh, geology and biology and i was going to go on to you know be a scientist that was the plan in the first time at university though i am um, it was okay i enjoyed it enough but i wasn't like completely um excited or passionate about what I was studying at university and I found that yes I read the books and did the work I had to for my geology and biology degree um, but what I came home and cho choose to do chose to do with my time is is read books about religion so I, I did I read books about science if I had to but I couldn't help myself um, wanting to to read books about religion um, and so even though I completed my degree, um, I sort of by the first term, I thought, actually, no, I'm not going to I'm not going to give my whole life to this. Um, 
what happened actually is I went on to do another degree in theology, um, specializing in the relationship of science and religion. And that um, was always something that I was really interested in. So I love, I love science. I mainly love dinosaurs, but I do love science um, and I do love religion. And that's always been true of me. And lots of Unitarians have been the same. Uh, if you look for Joseph Priestley, one of the founders of British Unitarianism, also in his spare time, uh, was essentially one of the founders of modern chemistry. Uh, he discovered photosynthesis, he discovered the processes of, of oxygen and carbon dioxide cycling uh, in the air. He didn't give them those names, but he discovered those processes. And uh, that was something that was his hobby as his job was being a Unitarian minister. I discovered Unitarianism. I first went to Unitarianism at Joseph Priestley's uh, church in Birmingham, New Meeting, uh, where he was a minister. So I've always felt that connection with him and with um, Charles Darwin, who I think is someone I, I find really interesting and is very kind of, he's a very human character, I think, Charles Darwin. Um, his mother was a Unitarian. He grew up uh, attending Shrewsbury Unitarian Church. And if you go to Shrewsbury Unitarian Church in the kind of the high street, there's a memorial on the ground outside the church with a, a fossil, um, a trilobite, I think, um, and a sort of plaque saying uh, Charles Darwin uh, worshipped here in, in his childhood. And that's, I love that image because it brings together kind of two of the things that have shaped a great deal of my life and have been great passions in my life, which is Unitarianism and fossils. So for us, science is religious. Science is religious. It's part of our faith, which is why we're going to spend the month of September living into the theme of, of reason and science, because that is a religious uh, a topic, a religious practice for us. Science in the broadest sense of the world is part of what it means to be a human being. In that Garden of Eden myth, the creator creates all the animals and then shows them to the first human and he names them, right? So there's a fundamental primal human calling to name, to describe the world. Humanity doesn't create the world, but humanity names the world, humanity describes the world, humanity gives the world, gives the living world, gives all creatures their names. We don't create things, but we do name things. We do seek to understand things. And here's this myth that describes that the creator creates and the human names describes, understands. Naming is a great deal of what science is about. If, if something, if a new form of life is discovered, it has to be given a scientific name, a proper scientific name. If a fossil is discovered, it gets given its proper um, scientific name, like Tyrannosaurus rex, it's a name like that. Um, as every living thing has a name like that. Genus, species, the 
full name. It's described, it's given a name, they publish it in a scientific journal, and that is its name forever. Interestingly, that's why, um, this is an aside, but I think it's interesting, that's why we don't have Brontosaurus anymore. Because some of you would remember, um, people used to talk about Brontosaurus and we don't anymore. The reason for that is we discovered some fossils and we just call those bones Apatosaurus. And then we discovered a more complete uh, skeleton and we named that Brontosaurus. And then we realized that these two uh, bones are from the same species. So this bone is actually the same species as this bone. But because Apatosaurus was named first, um, that's the rules of scientific naming. Therefore, the, the correct name is not Brontosaurus anymore. It's now Apatosaurus. And so the, the Brontosaurus is, is a, a scientific mistake in a way. It should not be called Brontosaurus. It should have been uh, realized as already being an Apatosaurus. Um, and yet that one became uh, the famous one. That's an aside, but it's, um, it's how this process of, of naming works. But of course, this process of naming, of discovering, isn't just a neutral process. So we try to understand atoms, right? We try to understand what is the, I really give a fundamental question, what are things made out of? What are the fundamental, what is the fundamental reality of things made of? What's the smallest building blocks of existence? And we say atoms, and then we kind of discover atoms are made of electrons and protons and neutrons, and there's even deeper levels of complexity below that. But as we begin to understand the, the inherent energies, the inherent power in what holds these things together, what holds reality together, the forces that hold the world together, we begin to realize that the, the applications for this, someone thinks what happens? What happens if we do this that releases some of the energy that holds things together? And we realize the power to create nuclear bombs, to create explosions bigger than anything ever seen before. And now we live in a world that has nuclear bombs. And we discover these, these black rocks in the ground and we name them coal. And we discover that if we, if we burn them, they, they give off heat. And we like that because we want to warm our homes. And this is, this is a good way of doing it. It works. It's efficient. And we keep burning these fossil fuels, oil and gas as well. And we keep burning them a lot, a lot, a lot, for hundreds of years. And then we discover how that disrupts the natural systems of the climate and how that creates instability and massive change in the way the atmosphere operates. And science tells us that, science tells us that. But the science is no longer the problem. You know, the science on, on climate change is really clear. The science is clear that we're heading to a disaster. We're, he we're in climate, in a climate crisis and millions of people are going to die. That's the scientific view. 
We know that, we know it, and we still don't act. We know it, and the politicians still don't act. And it's not because we haven't got the science, it's because we haven't got the will. It's not because we haven't got the knowledge, it's because we haven't got the wisdom to change, to shift. The problem is our wisdom does not grow at the same rate of our knowledge. Knowledge is expanding, is exploding all the time. The amount of information in the world is just unbelievably large and grows every day. More than one person could ever know. That's the nature of our civilization is the explosion of knowledge, the explosion of information. And yet our wisdom does not grow at anything like that rate. It just doesn't. And so our knowledge outstrips our wisdom to be able to apply that knowledge. And that's why we need a spiritual revolution as powerful as the scientific revolution of centuries ago. We need a revolution of our values. We need a revolution of love. We need a revolution of compassion. We need a spiritual revolution to be able to match the scientific revolution we've had. Otherwise our science just makes us children playing with guns. Maybe a revolution of love sounds idealistic in your ears. But the fact is it's simply necessary. Humanity will not survive this century without a revolution of love. This civilization is a suicidal civilization. It's, it's dysfunctional fundamentally. Something's going to have to change. Our society, our economics, our politics charges us towards a cliff edge. Every politician of, of, of every stripe, you know, says, oh, we must grow the economy. That's a philosophy that something can grow forever. That's a philosophy that you can blow up a balloon forever and it's never going to burst. It's just not a philosophy that's based on reality. It can't work forever. It's going to have to shift. It's going to have to change. We need that shift. We need that wisdom to know how to change on, on the micro level and on the big level of society. Science is beautiful and it's important and we're going to need it as a tool. We're going to need it as a tool to save us from this pandemic. And we are, we're doing that, right? And we're going to need it as a tool to save us from this climate crisis. but we need a wisdom that is as big and as impressive as our science. We need a spirituality that is as powerful as our science. And that's what I think the task of, of, of our church is. 
and of other spiritual communities. And that's why I'm not a scientist, but in want to be in the world of, of spirituality, of religion, because I see the deep need of that. And I see the great need for us, for this community, for anyone watching here today to be doing that work, the most important work. We need a wisdom to not just name all that lives and all that is, but to be in relationship with it, to respect it, to love it. Even the word it, I was listening to a podcast this week of uh, uh, a scientist, a botanist, who's also a, um, a Native American, and she was talking about how, it, how in English we call things it, we call uh, a plant it, and in, in other languages, in, in the Native language, Native American language she was referencing, that, that grammar happens differently. You wouldn't call a plant or an animal an it. So we see how our very language shapes the way we relate. We relate to living things. We relate to the natural world. <clears throat> we need that, those sorts of revolutions that happen in the very nature of language, in the very way we relate to the universe. Yes, we name the universe. Yes, we understand it. And yes, we want to understand every little bit of it through our great curiosity, a great fundamental human value of curiosity. And that's a deep, deep, noble calling for humanity to, to seek that understanding. It's, it's foundational to what it is to be human. And it's, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. <clears throat> it's a beautiful thing about what it is to be human. But it alone will not save us. The ability to name and describe in itself doesn't save us. What will save us is not just naming things, but loving things. Not just naming the universe, but loving the universe. Actually entering into a personal transformational relationship with the universe. And allowing the universe to love us back. That's what I think the spirituality of this points us to. That we need to enter into a religious relationship with the universe, an actual personal relationship with universe. That's the religious calling that might just bring about that spiritual revolution. May it be so.